From the McCourney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works, our last episode of the year. Guys, we made it to the end of year three of Democracy Works, if you can believe it. I know some of our listeners probably can't, but here we are anyway. We're just going to take a few minutes today and uh, reflect on where things are as we record this on December 15th. The Electoral College yesterday certified Joe Biden as our next president. And there's a lot of talk right now in the media about did democracy work or not in this election? And I think we are perhaps the perfect podcast to take up that question. So, Michael, why don't you kick us off? How do you think democracy worked this year? I think that it worked in that we had an election and the person who clearly won is going to be declared uh, the winner. On the other hand, I think this was uh, very shaky. Lots of cracks emerged. I think a lot of damage has been done. And uh, we're going to be paying the consequences in our democracy for the way this election has gone for years to come. I agree. I think that democracy is like currency. It only works if everyone buys into it, if everyone believes in it. So what we've seen is that the institutions work. One question that I have is whether those institutions will be used to produce undemocratic or democratic outcomes, especially in terms of equity and equality. And I'm concerned about whether Our institutions will be used to prevent turning public preferences into policy outcomes. I agree, too. I mean, if anything, I think I'm just wondering, I just want to make the point more strongly. I think that what has happened over the last month and a half, I guess, is the most direct and strong assault on our democracy since secession. I don't know what else you could go back to. That is the equivalent. And you see the effects. The NPR poll said that 24% of Republicans think the election was legitimate. That is not a sustainable number. And, you know, I don't know how many of these people really believe it or just are saying it because they know that's what a Republican should say. I don't know. And maybe in six months or so, everybody's going to be over this and it's going to be back to normal. I don't know. But there's no diminishing the damage that has been done and the really despicable actions of so many people on the Republican Party. There. (laughs) Yeah. In the context, especially of the kind of work we try to highlight on this show, we can't help but to be impressed, I think, with the performance and the work, especially of election officials who under very difficult and indeed even dangerous circumstances mm-hmm. did their jobs right. and did them quite well. I mean, it's really, I don't know that we would have expected with some of the things we were talking about at the beginning of the year, that we could say this election had no foreign interference or that despite the challenges of COVID and states rushing to develop uh, alternative voting schemes, that they were able to pull these elections off as smoothly as they were, but they were. And we've also seen really some acts of, I don't know, maybe heroism is too strong a word, but certainly bravery 
by some elected officials, especially Republicans, and then non-elected officials in the work that they've done. And then one final thing, I think the courts really redeemed themselves from the kind of assault that they've taken under Donald Trump by the kinds of decisions that they made. And not only that they refused to go along with a president who appointed them, which is a perspective that the president has, but not that they have, (laughs) but also that they, in some really unequivocal terms, made it clear that a lot of these lawsuits were just not based in reality, that they were really weak suits. And I mean, too bad the Supreme Court didn't want to make such a strong statement as some of these other courts made around the country. One thing I think, though, that we need to maybe differentiate here is there's the election. And I think you're absolutely right that there were, you know, a presidential election is really 51 elections. And people at the state and D.C. at that level did their work. They did really well, just as you're saying, courts did their job. They don't need Trump (laughs) to push whatever agenda that they may have. And I think it's important to note that, and we've discussed this season, that courts are not political, so they don't need Trump to do that work. They're there now. So there's the elections and we got past this. The other issue I think is going to be about norms and the extent to which Are Democrats going to try to go back to the old norms? Are they going to say, well, you did it, so we're going to do it? Are we going to see norms continue to erode? That's a question that I have about what game is going to be played around the unwritten rules that make democracy work. You just articulated the two possibilities, and we've seen evidence of both sides playing out, right? I'm thinking about the guy in Georgia who was on the daily, but you see it frequently where people said, look, I voted for Trump. I wanted Trump to win, but my job is to make sure this election is free and fair. And therefore I'm not going to, who I voted for is irrelevant, right? This is my job. This is my duty. This is my responsibility. So if that norm holds, or if that norm maintains critical mass, we'll be okay. But for the people who really, really smart people were assenting to really dumb propositions, and they weren't doing it because they believed them, they were doing it because they thought it was in their political interest. Mm -hmm. If that norm holds, we're in really big trouble. And I don't know that anybody can say which side is going to win. Well, I get the sense that, as he has in so many other areas, Donald Trump has shown, certainly the Republican Party and probably many Democrats as well, quite how far you can go and get away with it. And I think this really sets up some disturbing possibilities for future elections. Had this been just a bit closer, I think we could be in a very different place right now. And I I think he's shown a few things throughout his presidency, but this final set of circumstances really encapsulates it all, which is that he can push every boundary, every norm, every expectation of how we behave in a democracy, and his party will support it every election now, unless it's a landslide, is going to be just pushed and pushed and pushed through every possible constitutional avenue. I guess the norm here from how democracies die is forbearance, the idea, right, that you don't push every constitutional provision to its absolute extreme. 
I think that it's important for us to maybe even step back a little bit from Trump because I feel that a lot of the groundwork was already being laid before Trump even showed up on the scene. And so some things that come to my mind are extreme gerrymandering, where people are choosing their voters instead of letting voters choose them. I'm thinking about McConnell not confirming Obama's judicial nominees. And that happened for a long time. I'm thinking about voter suppression tactics after Shelby versus Holder in 2013. So I certainly agree. And I think that it's really critical for us to note that Trump's really exacerbated. He introduced some new stuff for sure, right? Which is why we were watching the news every day, 24 hours for the past four years. But some of the things that he did was simply to use the tools that were already laid out for him over the years. I think that we should be cognizant of the little things that have happened over the years that have built up, built up, built up, and eventually can, right, we just need someone to light the fuse to explode it all. And indeed, I mean, this is already being used as a reason by Republicans for further cracking down on voting rights, Mm -hmm. which they've been doing for years and years. And we've Mm -hmm. talked about it in a variety of different ways going back to Reconstruction, but then carrying through with these much more explicit and state-centered kind of rules and laws and make it more difficult for people to vote. We're already seeing that. So we're going to have investigations in the Senate. And this is all going to be used as the excuse for it, because we don't have confidence in our elections. Well, why don't we have confidence in our elections? Because one party worked relentlessly over the last month to make sure that we don't have confidence in our elections. Just to reiterate the point is that, for example, the introduction of voter ID laws after 2013 was hinged on the idea that we needed protection. We needed that. We needed to solve a problem that did not exist. Mm -hmm. And so for the past seven years, people have already been primed to this idea that we need to protect the vote from citizens. So what we're getting now is just kind of that. And that was basically what we're seeing now in miniature. But this idea, right, my students are sometimes like, I don't understand why you have such a big beef with voter ID. Well, we don't have a problem. We didn't need that in the first place. And so that set the groundwork for now us to say like, oh, well, maybe mail-in ballots are fraudulent and maybe this kind of ballots are fraudulent because we've set the stage to suggest that American elections have always been under threat and they haven't been, not at least from regular people trying to cast their ballot. I think when we're talking next year and sort of thinking back and trying to rebuild what our democracy is, we're going to see certain things that have just been destroyed by Donald Trump. One of them is going to be the legitimacy of our elections, Mm -hmm. which is obviously going to translate over to the fact that Joe Biden will be treated as an illegitimate president. But we're also going to see that bureaucratic agencies throughout the government have been completely hollowed out, completely hollowed out. Yeah especially the State Department, the Justice Department, there'll be a few others, the Environmental Protection Agency, we're going to see others. 
And my point is, so Trump was just sort of a nihilist. He just wanted to destroy, destroy, destroy. And he's been doing that since the minute he got in there. But the next more authoritarian leader may know how to use government rather than just be trying to destroy it. And I think the consequences there can be much more dangerous. And so much of the groundwork has been laid. And I can't let go of this idea that Trump has made it okay. He has shown everybody how far you can go and get away with it. In fact, I sometimes think he revels in just that. How far can I go today and get away with it? And Mm -hmm. every single day he gets away with it. Yeah, it goes all back to shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue. So, Candace, I wanted to ask you, because this is something that Michael and I have talked about, and we just disagree. I think it's the Trumpism evaporates without Trump. And Michael thinks that this authoritarian groundwork has been laid. And I'm just kind of curious where you come down on that. Again, I think that Trump has taken advantage of some things that were already there. So I don't see many things going anywhere. Trumpism is also like a weird, people say this word, I'm always actually curious to know what people mean by this word. Do you mean just the outlandishness of it all? Does it mean that you're kind of putting together these weird ideological package, like a shift away from traditional conservatism? I think that it's important to note that a lot of people showed up for Trump specifically. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of people showed up against Trump specifically, and that we saw that in the down ballot races. And so that, I think, is the thing that we need to see how that's going to play out, whether those Republicans who won in the down ballot races will try to leverage their relationship with Trump to further their agenda, or if they're going to say, okay, well, we're now in power. Let's revert back to the way that we are supposed to operate. I don't know. So maybe that's my answer is, I don't know. Well, nobody does. But going forward too, I mean, my suspicion, but we'll see, is that something has been triggered in terms of people wanting to participate in politics that was not necessarily there before. There's also an important generational change going on that I think is irrespective of Donald Trump. And we've seen this in our own surveys at the McCourtney Institute, that younger people tend to see democracy much more in terms of uh, political participation and majority will and popular rule and all of, I'm sorry, majority rule and popular will relative to older Americans. And there's no reason to believe that this is going to change. And so I think that There might be some much more positive developments for democracy coming as well. And we should expect this. You know, there's some really uh, interesting research that as, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but by uh, this guy Claussen, it was in the review a couple months ago, that when democracy is reduced in a country, public opinion towards democracy changes. People become more protective about it. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Trump's actions against democracy might have led to some sort of counter-reaction in it. It sounds like you're saying that the children are going to save us. I do think in some ways that there are going to be some areas where their perspective on democracy and politics is going to be quite influential and important. And one is going to be climate change, where I think they're going actually to become even more radicalized, potentially become radicalized as we have more and more sort of climate crises that hit us. 
And, uh, you know, for a while there, I thought on guns, too, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not so sold on that anymore, but certainly on climate. So yeah. by asking you if the children are going to save us, right, that one, it's going to be a long time, <laughs> mm-hmm. right, unless boomers move out of the way. We ended up with two right. septuagenarians for candidates after we had one of the most diverse group of primary candidates on the Democratic side. And this is what we ended up with. And then we have Biden doing like an Obama 3.0 kind of situation with this cabinet. And so I think that the optimism that young people are going to help to move the needle requires some people to get out of the way. And I don't see where that's happening. Or a long-term time perspective. One thing just to mention about the children is that even in this election, the children of color mostly voted for Biden and the white children mostly voted for Trump. So this demographics is destiny business. I mean, I think that we're going to see some of the same debates really just kind of pass on to the next generation unless we make a real effort to give them the tools to think critically about our institutions and the role that they play. I think that when we talk about our optimism for the next generation, we have a responsibility as the adults in the room to give them the tools to make the change that we want them to make. And I'm not sure that we're doing that. So what kind of tools, critical thinking self-perspective, historical perspective. What are you talking about? What are the two? Yeah, I mean, all of those things. And we talked about this, Chris, when we had the opportunity to have Wynton Marcellus on the show Mm -hmm. about art, about perspective, about having good debate skills, right? To know when you see a false equivalency, to know how to navigate the media. What is real media? What is quality? What is fake news? How do you find information when we see that local news is declining. These are the kinds of things that we need to ensure that young people have if we want them to be informed citizens, to make informed decisions. But so many of the institutions that allowed us, maybe the three, four of us were lucky enough to live in a moment where we got a certain kind of education a lot of those things are slipping away or are are disappeared. My son is at remote school because we have a pandemic that has not been put under control. The state and local governments are simply going to be starved. Yeah. So we're in for some very difficult times with, I think, schooling and with lots of other kinds of state and local sorts of provisions. That's going to be very challenging for them. Yep. I guess, I mean, I I don't want to overstate my optimism here. I think there is a structural argument for optimism, but it is absolutely long-term. I think the one thing that kind of unites many of the things we've talked about already, gerrymandering, this kind of culture's devotion to Trump, is the evidence of a rearguard action of a group in power that is losing its majority status that seeks to maintain power. And that explains just about everything. And as the electorate becomes more urban and suburban, more people of color, more college-educated people, the, the ability of this white, rural, racial resentment 
non-college educated group is going to diminish. And as that happens, just in terms of numbers, as that happens, they're just going to be less and less able to achieve these kind of anti-democratic, use these anti-democratic mechanisms. I think that's probably as direct a thing I've said in three years, but that is how I account for all these things. And I think that more than anything else is what's good. Eventually that power is just simply not going to be there anymore. I'm talking decades, but I think it's eventually going to happen. I think it's interesting that you say that, Chris. One, there is, I don't know, some statistic that says in some short amount of time in the Senate, 70% of people will be represented by 30% of the Senate. And it's moving increasingly in that direction. Right. And so how do you square what you said with something like that? I square it because in just about every one of those red states, there is an urban center that is growing and a rural part of the population is diminishing. You saw that in Georgia already. You're seeing that in Texas. I mean, there's just enough states where the eventually the numbers are going to turn around. I don't know how soon it's going to happen. I don't even know if it's going to happen. If there's something on which to be hopeful about, it's that. We also should recognize that party systems change. And so Mm -hmm. current configuration need not be the one forever into the future. Mm -hmm. And history tells us it won't be. So you're right, Chris, that their demographic changes mean that states that where red are going to become bluer or purple because of, but but there's also the possibility that Democrats could again become competitive in Western states and mountain states, and uh, that Republicans, on the other hand, are going to become much more secure in the uh, urban industrial North, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, as they get older and whiter, and that they just become uh, more, more and more Republican. But more fundamentally, that party systems can change. And mm-hmm. it's hard to anticipate going forward. It's much easier to see looking backwards. On that note, we should start to uh, bring it in here. Yeah, so uh, I know it is going to be, I think, as as you guys are just saying, as Biden has been saying, a little bit of darkness, but maybe some light to come with the COVID vaccine and new administration on the horizon here. As we start to bring this in here, you guys have anything we haven't talked about that you think people should be looking out for as we head into the new year? Or maybe something that we didn't get to talk about this year that we should try to revisit in 2021. I got one thing. It's not big, but I do think we should be thinking about this edifice of politics and government. What do individuals, what do families do? How do we respond to this in a way that affirms our commitment to democracy? How do we behave towards each other in a way that makes things better and not worse, that steps away from this kind of abyss of the downward loop, the doom loop? I think that's something that we should be thinking about, but maybe we should be helping people think about that, Mm. I guess. That's what I would say. Some things that I'm going to be paying attention to in the new year are what is the Supreme Court going to do? How are they going to behave? Are they going to behave in a way that, how will they manage their legitimacy considering their makeup? 
The other thing that I want to keep my ear to the ground on is I feel like after the election, in some ways, there's that same kind of feel that we got after Obama, like, okay, we've been saved. Everything's going to be okay. And questions about equity and especially racial equity really requires a lot of attention and energy. And that attention and energy already seems to be on the wane. So I'm curious to see how that is going to play out and not just at the national level, but at the state and local level too. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to follow up on what Candace was saying and, and say, let's pay attention to what's going on at the state and local levels. I noticed that I think every one of the local initiatives that were up having to do with police departments actually passed. Other kinds that we've talked about as well, I think there's a lot of interesting energy going on there. Now, also limited on what what could be done, but not important. I was also going to say that I'm really going to be interested in Biden's ability to rebuild American institutions, both in their capacity to act and in their legitimacy among the public. And that is important. I think that we've really lost track of quite the damage that has been done and the damage that is being done every single minute by their changes in civil service reform, in their putting people into positions from which they can't be removed from this appointment of special prosecutors that the Biden team is going to be stuck with. You're seeing this throughout the federal bureaucracy. And uh, so that's going to be an area where I'll be kind of interested to see and, and want us to follow up. Let me just throw one other that we didn't really talk about as much but I think is so critical with what we're seeing with the election. And that is the kind of epistemological polarization that we've talked about at other times has reached almost a, almost a comic level with this election, where you now have this large number of people who are living in an absolute fantasy world about cheating and conspiracies and the involvement of dead dictators. It is just remarkable the extent to which people are living in two different senses of reality. And I have to say, only one of them really is real. And, you know, we have to constantly call it out. You don't get to just say that your reality is real because you want it to be. Or just as legitimate as yours. You you can't have a democracy that way. You have to have some agreement. Fundamentally, you have to have agreement on who won an election. And this, I can't overstate how critical that is to a democracy. You have to have agreement on who won. And we don't have that. Yeah. We don't have it. And we're not going to. Well, to your point about uh, epistemic polarization, I think we are going to, over the next couple of weeks, rebroadcast the episode that we did with. Nancy Rosenblum and Russell Muirhead about their book, A Lot of People Are Saying, which yeah. I think after How Democracies Die is the book you guys refer to on this show the most often. So uh, we'll get to, to revisit that. And I should also say, listeners, if there are topics you want us to cover or things you think we should be talking about in the new year, please get in touch. We're always happy to hear your ideas and your suggestions. But otherwise, thank you all for a great year, for sticking with us through COVID and everything that's happened. Thank you to our partners at WPSU for helping us make the show happen week to week. Thank you, Candice, for joining this crazy crew and uh, being part of our little show here. 
And uh, for the Democracy Works team, I am Jenna Spinelli. Yeah, ditto everything that Jenna just said. And uh, yes, this has been a challenging but interesting year, hasn't it, to, to do this in this COVID environment. And welcome to Kansas. Thank you, everyone, for sticking with us. And I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watt-Smith. Thanks for listening to Democracy Works. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.